let's get to Acts chapter 1. And I'd like us to think for a few moments about probably the greatest need and the greatest struggle that you as a Christian and we as churches face in our lives. Just imagine trying to minister in a setting where your church faces all kinds of challenges. Now, I know that Calvary doesn't have that. But just imagine that your church is facing challenges due to government obstacles, religious factions that push on us and threaten our existence, the ongoing secularization of society that says, why is there a need for God? Well, actually, that does sound like us, doesn't it? But that's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the first century church. You know, Ecclesiastes, there's a statement there that says, there's nothing new under the sun. That's very true. And oftentimes, we especially as 21st century Christians like to act or assume as if this is the first time that anyone's ever had to deal with these types of things. That's not true. As a matter of fact, one of the best things we can do is to look to the early church through the pages of Scripture to understand how relevant, number one, the Word of God is, and secondly, how appropriate it is for us to learn from those who have gone before us in these types of situations. Because just like the church today, the early church faced all kinds of challenges that impacted ministry. We could spend a couple of hours just looking at all the proof text for this, but let me just kind of summarize it for all of us here this morning. There was indeed government infringement upon the early church that threatened their religious liberty, if they even had any in the Roman culture, their religious expression because of the uh, religious fanaticism, the sectarianism that threatened them. They were challenged by other groups that thought they were the only way, and therefore uh, they were scrutinized and persecuted because of their belief in Jesus Christ, as we've just sung their desires to honor and glorify him, even the fact that they would call Jesus Christ Lord was in great contrast and conflict to what was required during those Roman days, and that is the Caesars were known as the Lords. You called Caesar Lord, and these early Christians dared to call someone else their Lord. We don't understand a lot of the backdrop of that as we look at the scriptures through 21st century eyes, that there was a time when it was demanded of you as a citizen that you called a human ruler Lord. And we kind of flippantly use the phrase the Lord Jesus Christ and think nothing of it. And yet, every time a tongue would seek to pronounce that in their culture, they were, they were doing it at risk of being greatly persecuted, imprisoned, and even martyred for that statement alone, let alone the way that they lived their lives. There was a, uh, the, this fanaticism that was just rampant in religion caused the church to stand out, but often standing out in a, a polariz polarizing way that meant that uh, other cults, other groups had a greater prominence, and they too tended to try to push down on what the church was seeking to accomplish. And then the just secularization of society distorted the gospel in so many ways that the early church fathers, in experiencing this tidal wave of opposition and, and secularism and philosophical differences, constantly had 
to keep steering the church, the infant church, back to its foundational principles. And that's just within the first couple of years of the church's existence after the day of Pentecost. And so, yes, our times are challenging. Yes, our times are tough. Yes, it is important for us to to appreciate the, the challenges as well as the opportunities that we have in our society. But don't for a moment think that this is some new phenomena that the church is just now finally experiencing. We need to understand and appreciate that in many ways the the fires of opposition are many way, times the things that God actually uses to stoke and to stir up the fires of spiritual passion within us. And that's part of my burden as we would open God's word together this morning. So even though they faced this tidal wave as I've described it, there was something very unique about the early church that allowed the early church not just to survive, but thrive. And the byline of my message title this morning, based upon the power of a praying church, is this. Here is why the infant church flourished when it actually should have floundered because of everything that we've just described, and we could have taken a whole hour just to describe even more about the oppression and the opposition that they faced. So why is this so? Why is it that this young church, these these Fledgling believers gathering together in Jerusalem, and then as the church was spread into other parts of the world, why was it that even with the lack of resources, the lack of popularity, the lack of all the things that you and I take for granted as we gather here on a Sunday morning in August in 2021, why was it that they didn't fall, they didn't crumble, this phenomenon known as a church died off so that we wouldn't even be talking about it today. Why is it that they did not flounder, but they flourished? Well, we've already talked about it in this service this morning. The key dynamic that held them together is prayer. They prayed often, and most significantly, they prayed together. It's interesting that the very first New Testament book written, not by the chronological way that we look at it in our New Testament, but in terms of the time in which it is written, was written by one of the apostles named James. And as James talks to the church in Jerusalem in particular about the dynamics of walking with God by faith, and in his letter, he's challenging those early believers, hey, don't just talk about it, but live it out. You say you have faith without works. I want you to demonstrate your faith by your works. And this was not a work ethic salvation. We understand that. But what he's saying is because of everything I've just described, it would be very easy for any believer in that context and even in our day to kind of crawl into a cocoon and just kind of live out our faith as secret agents. And frankly, that's what a lot of Christians try to do today. And there were some, obviously, because James rebukes him, them in his letter, to say, don't do that. And I think he kind of saves the, the point, the application, the crescendo of his letter at the end where he shares this. And he uses Elijah as the illustration in chapter 5. He says, the effective or effectual fervent prayer of righteous people, say it with me, avails much. It accomplishes much. 
Now, why would this apostle of the early church, of all the things that he could have said, and all the things that he did say in this letter, wait to the end and with the punctuation of exclamation say, if you don't just want to survive, but if you want to thrive in your own walk with God and as a church, here's what you need to understand. Take the example of Elijah, who's just a common guy like us. But he prayed, and God honored prayer. And James says to the church in Jerusalem, church, there's where we need to be. So we come to this book of Acts. It's obviously a very transitional book. It's a historic book of the New Testament. And it's a very uh, foundational book for you and I as we seek to understand God's desire for us in our lives and in the ministry of a local church like Calvary Baptist Church. I was schooled on this book by a couple of key mentors in my early life. One, as a young Christian, uh, go, uh, just going to Christian college. And then secondarily, and most primarily for me, by a man who actually held the role that I hold now in Michigan, in the state of Ohio, who is a man who was known because of his commitment to prayer, first in the ministry of the local church where he pastored, and then, then secondly, in the role that he held in our state association as he constantly pushed us as pastors not just to embrace prayer but to drop to our knees and be engaged in prayer by the way talking about dropping the knees you you do realize talking about james a little bit ago that his nickname was camel knees do you know why have you ever seen the knees of a camel they're not very attractive they're 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 rather large they've got uh Kind of, they're, they're just uh, leathery, uh, and they're, they're like padding because camels drop to their knees to uh, let the load a person or, or what they're lading uh, uh, off, and that's how they rest. James was constantly on his knees in prayer, and his knees were not a sight to behold, except for the fact that it just showed this was a man who lived what he talked. He was a man of prayer. And so was the early church. So my mentor, uh, in teaching me about the, the dynamics and prominence of prayer in my life, would often say this. This book we call the book of Acts, the Acts, most of our Bibles would say, the Acts of the Apostles. This book could actually be called the Acts of Prayer. Because as you trace the early church through the book of Acts and all the key players that are a part of establishing the church, they were people of prayer. And that's the only way that you can, apart from the dynamic, mighty work of God, that is the only way that you can explain all of the incidents, all of the opportunities, all of the ways in which that church brought glory to God. One more thing before we kind of dive into certain texts here in the time that remains is this. It's no accident that above and beyond anything else that the Word of God references, the most commonly discussed or illustrated topic in Scripture is prayer. Over 2,200 times, prayer is either referenced or demonstrated in the Bible. We sang from the book of prayer. In Psalms, earlier in this service, in worship, the book of Psalms is actually a prayer book. It's a hymn book. Hymns are vocal expressions of prayer and praise to God. 
Do you think, possibly, church, that God is trying to teach us something if we just actually stay in his word and read it through from cover to cover, that he's actually giving us the dynamic that we need, not just to survive, but to thrive? Well, Ken Floyd's answer is yes. And I've experienced that in my own life, in my ministry, and I, as I go from church to church throughout our state and other parts of the country, I can tell you this. It's very evident to me that part of the hallmark of churches that are indeed very definitely thriving is the fact that they've made this a priority. And it's not just about prayer meeting. Frankly, we got to work on our prayer meetings. And I don't know, I, I can say this with all honesty, without feeling like, you know, I'm kind of snooping, I'm the camel putting my nose in your tent. I've kind of observed, because I have no idea. So I'm just saying this naively, but I want to say it boldly. We have to be careful because most prayer meetings have, have become, over years of time, and I've been in many of them, they become organ recitals. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Have you ever noticed how often our prayer times are praying for Aunt Mary's spleen or Uncle Joe's liver or my kidneys or my broken leg or my headache? Now, I am not saying that it's not appropriate and proper to do that. But you just stop and think even of your own prayer life or your prayer group that you're involved in or even as a church, what we focus on. And frankly, I was blessed as Brother Al led us this morning that he didn't even go there. He could have, and it could have been very relevant and very practical and very Christ-honoring. But there's so much in our lives, so much in our ministries that we need to bring to God not in an organ recital way and just feel like we tick through the list and then we've done our duty, but heartfelt prayer that honors God, that says, God, we, we don't have the perspective that we need, but we know you do. And so we're coming to you now for your guidance and your direction. So here we go, Acts chapter 1. Join me there just for a couple of verses. But I, as we think of the power of a praying church, it begins with what Jesus has shared in the gospel narratives, especially in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17, where he's prepping the disciples who are going to be known very soon, very quickly as the apostles. A disciple is a follower of Christ, someone who is being taught by Christ. An apostle is a different word, and it's very significant that certain select ones were called apostles. They are the sent out ones that are called to lead the early church as God births the church to help the church know how to engage in gospel relationships in the communities where they will go. And here in Acts chapter 1, Jesus in John chapters 13 through 17, and Luke also, who is the author of this letter, of this historical book, has been noting it in his gospel. Jesus has been prepping them about what they need to do once he leaves the earth. Jesus is talking with them about the fact that it's good that he leave because he will send another comforter. Jesus has been their comforter, but he's going to send another comforter, the Holy Spirit, who will not only come alongside of them, but the Spirit of God will dwell within them. And as they had several times with Jesus, Jesus is saying as he comes here in Acts chapter 1 with them to the mountaintop, as he is about to ascend back into heaven, he says, now, I'm going to give you a couple instructions before I leave, but when I am done, I want you to go back to the room where we've gathered regularly, the upper room. 
And you remember the upper room discourses. That's what I've referenced from John chapters 13 through 17. You remember all that we've talked about there. You remember the dynamics of prayer that we've emphasized there. I want you to go back there, and I want you to wait. That's kind of the synopsis of verses 1 through 7. I want you to wait until the event and the opportunity that I've been teaching you about actually occurs. I want you to wait there, and I want you to be in a posture and an attitude of prayer. But then he says this in Acts 1.8. But we, you will receive power. That word power is dunamis in the original. It's from the word we get the word dynamite from. You will receive dynamic, explosive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And once he says that, he's gone. He goes up into the clouds. He goes back. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God to prove once and for all that as the statement that he declared from the cross, it is finished, is actually the truth because now he's gone back because his earthly work is accomplished. And now the church is going to be birthed. And so they obey. They go back to that room, the upper room, and they wait. Chapter 2, verse 1. They go to that room. And the word of God tells us there that as they were waiting and tells us in earlier verses in chapter 1, they were praying, they were interacting with one another. And when the day of Pentecost, a festival time in Jerusalem, arrived, they were all together in one place. You're going to hear that phrase often. They were all together. They were all together. They had one heart. They had one mind. They were praying together. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to hear that phrase often in Acts as well. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. Now, we don't want to dig into the weeds of all that's going on in the background here, and I don't want you to get all nervous about some of the language here. But here's what's happening. They're praying. They're waiting, even as Jesus instructed them to. And God honored their prayer desire and their prayer obedience by accomplishing exactly what Jesus had been sharing with them. We like to call committees together. <laughs> we like to say, well, let's see if we can figure this out. And then at the end of our committee meetings, we say, oh, yeah, now let's ask God for his blessing on everything that we just decided. That's not the model that Christ has given us. You gather first. You are in a prayerful attitude. You're in a prayerful posture. By the way, not just for church things, but in your own personal life, in your family's life. That's the focus. That's the focal point. We want to be laser beam-like, and we do that by coming to God and God saying, take all of our distorted, scattered thoughts. They may be good spiritual thoughts, but take all of those thoughts, all of those attitudes, all of those perspectives. Now bring them through your sovereign authority into a laser beam-like focus so we understand what the next step is that we need to take. What is it that we need to do to bring honor and glory to Christ? The very thing that we prayed about in the service as we were worshiping God in song. Our songs were saying, God, we want to glorify you. We want to honor you. Well, how do we do that? They waited. God answered. That was the birth of the church. That was the birth of that baby, the backside of that baby. The Holy Spirit slapped into life, and they went out of the room, and they went into the streets of Jerusalem. Festival time. 
people from every kind of language and tongue gathering to Jerusalem for a great time. They come out of there and they start sharing the gospel. We know that because of what goes on in chapter 2. They share the gospel and they share it clearly and amazingly because of the work and power of the Holy Spirit. I don't think the, the dynamic excitement was as much the fact that these people were talking I think as much of the dynamic excitement that we see here is that the Spirit of God was working in the ears of the hearers. It wasn't somehow all of a sudden Peter knew all kinds of different languages as he preached the message, because do you get this? He wasn't speaking in one tongue at the end of this chapter as he's proclaiming the first gospel message of the New Testament church. He wasn't saying, okay, now I need to interpret this in this language. I need to share it in this accent or this dialect. He shared it once for all, but the Holy Spirit was doing an amazing work in the ears of the hearers. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the act of conversion that God teaches us so dogmatically and doctrinally about throughout the New Testament. So don't get caught up about what was seen above their heads or what was going on. It's not so much about what's happening in us as it is what is being done by God in the hearts and the ears of the hearers as we demonstrate the gospel. So we get to at the end of Acts chapter 2 in this presence of prayer for the church and we watch Peter of all people, because we could go back to the Gospel of John chapter 21, and here is Jesus with Peter, and Peter is the, do the, the dog, if you would say, of all the apostles who are going to be sent out with his tail between his legs. Jesus says, I want to have a one-on-one -on -one with you, Peter, and Peter is thinking in his mind, I don't know why he thought he might as well have just said it to Jesus because Jesus could read his thoughts. And Peter doesn't, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I am so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. I denied you just like you said I would. And I, I basically called God. I called God a liar. Jesus eyeballs Peter. Peter, look at me. Look at me, Peter. Don't be like a dog with your tail between. Look at me. Do you love me? Wow. What a question. Imagine Jesus is here right now, and he is sitting across from you eyeball to eyeball, and he asks you, do you love me? Wow. You know you got to be honest. He already knows your heart. Peter answers honestly, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus knew he did. He knows our frailties. He knows our faults. But he also knows the spiritual potential within us when we yield our hearts to God. And he says, feed my sheep. Second time he asks, he says, feed my lambs. Third time he asks again. And at this point, I'm sure Peter, like us, if we were in that situation, is just blubbering. Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. So just a few weeks later, here we are, Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up because he's hearing, the, he's hearing the crowd. He's hearing the spin in the crowd. Oh, they're drunk. They, 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 they've, they've been drinking all morning. And Peter stands up and says, hey, I just want you to know, it's early. How in the world could you accuse any of us of being drunk? It's too early for us to even get to the point of intoxication. I want to tell you what's going on. And Peter preaches the first message of the church age, and we can't go through it this morning, but it's dynamic. Go back and look at it. He quotes scripture accurately. He shares exactly with boldness what they had done to the Christ by crucifying him and burying him. And they're all culpable, he says. 
The same man who shirked in the shadows as he watched Jesus go through the courtyard to be tried and then crucified. The same man who is cowering so that he even curses at a little girl who says, aren't you one of them? He now is with power. And I just say, what's the difference? What made the difference? Peter's the same. He's the same guy. He's still a fisherman. He's going to be called a dummy later on. In chapter 4, these are ignorant men. How can they be so bold? It's because he'd been baptized into the church. By the way, if you know Christ today, so have you. He has the Holy Spirit enabling him. By the way, every one of you who's claimed Jesus Christ as your Savior, so do you. So do we. And that's how the church is birthed. So that when you come to chapter 2, verse 42, look on with me. It says uh, in verse 41, they devoted, or they, they, were, uh, they received the word that, G, uh, that Peter shared that day about Jesus. They were baptized, and there were at that day about 3,000 souls. And that's probably the way they did counting and census back in their day was they usually counted the head of households. So 3,000 probably refers to head of households, and you always have to multiply that by at least two and a half. Thousands of people heard the message on the day of Pentecost, came to a saving knowledge of Christ, and here's what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Those articles, those definite articles are important here. They had a focus, and here's their focus, in the precedence of prayer in the local church. First of all, they were focused upon doctrine, the word of God. Now, group, I'm looking out. And I see most of you with a paper copy of the Bible open right now. Some of you are using smartphones, and that's fine as long as you're not checking your Facebook or, you know, whatever. But you're actually in the Word of God with me right now and with us. They didn't have a copy of the Scripture. New Testament wasn't even written yet. They were doing good as a church, a gathering of those believers, to have even one copy of the parchments at that point. They didn't break up and have the uh, uh, Bible studies and all the things that we have today. They didn't have curriculum. They couldn't go to a Christian bookstore. There were none. They couldn't go online and get anything. There was no internet. And even if there was an internet, they wouldn't have any resources. They couldn't go sit in comfortable seating in an auditorium with air conditioning in the summer and heat in the winter. They didn't have any buildings. Do you know at this point, they didn't even have a pastor. Now, don't take that to the bank and say, well, hey, we'll just go with what we got now. That's not the point. The point is this. Are you listening? They had Jesus Christ. They had the Holy Spirit. And they had prayer. And guess what? It was enough. It was enough for them later on to be described as the people who turned the world upside down for the glory of God. So here's my first application, and I didn't really put this in here, but it's just this. Quit sniveling. Quit doing the woe is me. Quit thinking that you can't make it in the culture in which we live today. 
We've got proof positive here in the Word of God. Not only can you survive, but you can flourish when God is your focus. When it's not about your ability, but the enablement of the Holy Spirit working through you. And you're laser focused in your walk because you're praying as individuals and you're praying as a church. Now here's our application in chapter 4. Because we go from the precedence of prayer in establishing the church to the preciousness of church of prayer for the endurance of the church. And this is where the rubber meets the road for even us today. We see in chapter 4, verse 1, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and others were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So there's this tension there. Here's what was happening back in the precedence. They, they had godly reverence. It was obvious that they were truly unified as a church. They were fellowshipping together because the definite article is there before the word the fellowship. They had strong worship and witness because they were remembering regularly the Lord's table. That's the breaking of bread in chapter 2, verse 42. And they were having God's blessing in every part of their lives because if you read after verse 42 at the end of chapter 2, they were finding favor with everyone around them because it was God working through them. And so when you get to chapter 4 and verse 2, those who are not a part of the church, those who are the predators trying to squelch the church, I like the, I like the language at the beginning of verse 2 in the ESV, they were greatly annoyed. And I want you to know, just passing this building today, if someone notices the sign out there, there are going to be people passing it, they're going to be greatly annoyed. Oh, people don't like us. That's just, that's the church. When you are dealing with the life and death message of salvation through the gospel, do you read, do you read the, the rest of the New Testament? The preaching of the gospel is an offense. The preaching of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Wow, what a great motivational thing for us to know. No, it's just God being honest with us as believers in Jesus Christ. You are going to be looked at as lunatics, and some Baptists are. You're going to be looked at as a threat, and we should be in the right sense. And you're going to be looked at as if you've lost your mind, and you've lost your heart. And frankly, you have. You've given them to Jesus Christ in surrendering your life and your soul to him. And now you are his children. So here's what happens as we get towards the uh, concluding points of the morning. They bring G Peter and John. They obviously were the two big gurus in the church in Jerusalem. So they said, we're going to pick these guys off. We're going to arrest them, bring them in, and they're going to bring them for questioning. And so they go in, verse 12, it says, we're just going to tell you right now, everything I've just illustrated with you. There's no other name given among men under heaven whereby you must be saved. Our kids learn that in Awana, Word of Life, or whatever you do. We memorize it as one of the first verses as a new believer. That's a, that's a, a proof text for us about the power of the gospel. It's, it's shared by Peter at a time where he's being threatened with imprisonment in his very life. He says, okay, I just want you to know one thing. Let's just get to the bottom line here. There's no other name given among men under heaven whereby you must and you will be saved. It's, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he just offended every group, 
secular and religious that was on the earth at the time. And here's the verse I, I paraphrased earlier, verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. How could men that are fishermen and they're the people that no one likes to hang around with, for one, you ever been around a fisherman? They kind of smell. They, all they want to do is talk about fishing. So they, after a while, I mean, how many fish stories can you hear without saying, okay, I've, I've heard them all from you now. And they're uneducated. You don't need a master's degree to go out and fish. That's fun. If it's your job, it can be very challenging. But they recognize this one thing about these uneducated, from their perspective, doofuses, and it's this. In their astonishment, verse 13, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Ken Floyd, when's the last time someone recognized you've been with Jesus? Now, the fingers point both ways, and they are. When's the last time someone, above all the other things I could say about you, he's been with Jesus? When's the last time people in this community would say, wow, those Calvary people, they're, they're weird, they're kind of dumb, but you know what? It's pretty obvious to us they've been with Jesus. Isn't that what our world needs to see today? I mean, we can turn on the news and hear all the stuff going on, and we need to pray about it. Thank you, Al, for leading us to the throne to talk to a sovereign God about that. But we have to be careful that we don't allow even our perspective as believers in Christ to become secularized, politicized. That's what the threat of the early church was. It's a threat for us today. They've been with Jesus. That was enough. So they threatened them. They say, um, okay, here's the deal. You can talk about all you want to talk about, but just don't say the name Jesus in your proselyzing. <laughs> and here's Peter again, the blathering idiot of just a few chapters before in the, in the Gospels. He says, and it's actually saying Peter and John together, verse 19, say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than... Uh, to, to, then to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Uh, nice try, guys, but we're just going to keep talking about Jesus until we're blue in the face or in his presence, either because he's called us into his presence or you've killed us. We're going to talk. And they leave, and they go back, and they share with the church. There's no chapter and verse they can look up because they don't have Bibles. There's no curriculum or books that have been written about suffering and persecution that they could refer to. And so as Peter and John share with them, beginning in verse 23, said all that the chief priests and elders had said to them when they heard it, guess what they did? They collectively lifted their voices, verse 24, to God, and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city they were, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants 
to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's quite a prayer, isn't it? I have to admit, I've probably never prayed a prayer quite exactly like that in content. But it's quite a prayer. Now, let's just notice a couple of things here about the prayer. It's really important for us to remember this in our, in our conversation here today. They were unified in their prayer. It was corporate. It was corporate prayer. They didn't all scatter out, oh, we're going to go home and pray about this. They stayed together. They prayed together. Because they realized there was strength in numbers. And you know what the number was? What does God say in his word? Where two or three are gathered in my name, guess where God is? Right there. Right there. So they, they didn't say, what are we going to do? They prayed. The second thing I want you to notice Oh, God, I don't know if you're aware of this, but here's what happened with Peter and John and all these things. No, they, they prayed biblically. They went to the word of God. And you know what? I have found, and this is what my second mentor really forced me to understand, was that, Ken, you're not a reporter to God. You don't have to rehash every single thing. Now, if it's because it's doing a work in your heart and you need him to take care of some things, that's fine. But don't feel like you're God's secret agent or reporter and you're just going up and just spewing everything that God already knows and a lot more about that situation than you do because he not only knows your perspective on it, but he knows the other players who were there as well and their perspective on it and he knows why he's allowed it to happen. So it's probably just a good idea. God, I need your perspective. I need your wisdom. So pray scripture. That's exactly what they did. They prayed the Psalms, Psalm chapter two exactly. And they say, why do the Gentiles and nations rage? Why do people's plot in vain? That's exactly what was happening in the time of Christ. It's exactly what's happening to them. It's what's happening now. The kings of the earth set themselves up. The rulers are gathered together. And guess what? When it's convenient and it helps them to be popular, they might say, oh, yeah, those Christians are okay. But when it's not convenient and it's not popular, that's in the text, by the way. That's a Greek word. They prayed scripture. They had a biblical perspective. I want you to notice also in verse 29 or verse 30, they, they prayed, excuse me, it was verse 29 and 30 together. They prayed for boldness. They prayed for courage, not loopholes. You know, I'd be getting on my smartphone or I'd be asking people around me, do you know a good Christian attorney? They keep threatening me with arrest. I need a good Christian attorney to help me work my way out of this mess. I've got freedoms. I've got rights. And it's not wrong to, to lean on those at times. But if that's the first thought that comes to our mind, if that's the first action that we take, again, it's a commentary on who and what we hold as the most important primary in our lives. They prayed, and they prayed with boldness. God, help us to be courageous. They prayed for courage, not loopholes. And at the end, it's just basically this. You know, we, we don't know what's going to happen to us. We might die. They might come in and kill us all even while we're praying here. But God, however this turns out, whatever the situation, 
even if we're the players in it or not, our desire is for you to be glorified. What great prayer modeling they did for us today. Now, God responded, but not in the way they prayed. This is what I want you to notice as we close. Not in the way they prayed. What did they pray for? They prayed for courage, right? They prayed for boldness. Did you, do you see, beginning uh, in verse uh, 31, what happens? When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So God did answer their prayer, right? They wanted boldness, they wanted courage. God answered. But guess what he did before? Filled them with the Holy Spirit. They thought all they needed to do was to be bold. But God knew if they were going to do something that is supernatural, that is spiritual, that is going to have eternal ramifications in it, they needed the enablement of the Holy Spirit. Ken, don't think you're going to pray and then go out there and in your own strength, in your own flesh, with your own intuition, with your own wisdom, with your own schooling, with your own training, be able to pull this off. You can't. So understand your absolute, total, utter reliance upon the Holy Spirit. That's what we need today. That's what we need as individuals, and that's what we need as a church. So when you read the rest of Acts chapter 4, here's what happens. They are, um, they are gathering back together, verse 32. They believed they were of one heart and soul. No one said anything uh, of the things that they owned were their own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. There it is. They named the name. Great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone as they had need. And that, therefore, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field belong, that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's what happens when you're filled with the Spirit because you've prayed in a biblical way to God. They had unity, yes, they were unified, verse 32 says. They had true fellowship because they didn't see, well, this is mine. They weren't Nemo people with the seagulls and, and, and finding Nemo. Mine, 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 mine. It was everything, ours, ours, God's, God's. There was empowered leadership with boldness, with courage, the apostles declared the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you're praying about your pastoral staff and your next lead pastor. You should be praying for him now. Do you realize the best way to have a great pastor is not just to pray with him, but pray for him. And pray the very things that they prayed for in this prayer in Acts chapter 4. It emboldened the leadership because they prayed. There was abundant graciousness. They were sharing of their needs. There was a lack of need among them because they, they began to look at things spiritually. So the things they thought they needed, like the hottest model of whatever smartphone you use or computer or car or whatever, they realized that's not what's important. And so the perspective even of what a need is was redefined through the Holy Spirit. And lives were changed. Most people don't even know Barnabas by his other name, Joseph. 
But here's what the Spirit of God did in the heart of Barnabas, a man who, who uh, was from uh, Cyprus, a Levite. He was so generous, he was so filled with the Spirit in the way that he did things that he no longer was called Joseph when they assembled. It was always, hey, Barnabas, because he's a son of encouragement. And so as I close here with you, I just want you to know the promise of prayer reeks with wonderful spiritual perfume throughout the whole New Testament, and it's based upon four observations that we need to take home with us and live in our lives today. First of all, prayer was a foundational priority in the church. I don't think we can say that about the church of Jesus Christ in the world today for the most part, at least in the Western world. Prayer is way down on the priority scale and way down on the agenda list of Christians and churches in the world in which we live. Prayer was also a regular priority. It wasn't like, you know, we have some churches, and I, again, I don't know what's going on here, but people get all bound up in knots when we talk about doing something with prayer meeting, which frankly is not really prayer meeting. A lot of it's a bunch of Bible study and then a couple minutes of prayer, or if it is prayer the whole time, a lot of times it's basically an organ recital. We need to rethink the fact that prayer should permeate every part of our lives and every aspect of our ministries. We should be praying more in services like this. We should be praying more every day of the week. We should be gathering for special times of prayer. That's why God blessed our ministry in Grand Rapids so strongly because it wasn't me. I taught principles, but it was other people in the church that said, let us become a house of prayer. And it's a daily discipline. If you, if you, if you put your foot off the pedal it slides, and I've seen that in my own life, in my own churches, and in churches in general. It was a regular priority. It was a leadership priority. The apostles had to be at the forefront of that. And so if you're a spiritual leader here, you need to make that a priority in your own life, and you need to live it out and express it in the way in which you help lead this church. It's a shared priority. So don't you be just nodding your head when I talk about the leaders. Every single one of us here, everyone hearing this message, all of us in the church of Jesus Christ on this globe today need to share this priority because it is the way in which churches who flounder, or should at least, will flourish because it's all about God. It's all about his glory. It's all about his work in and through us. So let us pray.